Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Michael Pregent, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and visiting fellow at the National Defense University, join us to discuss Washington and Baghdad. Where did things stand now? Mr. Pregent will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Michael Pregent. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, as we look at the US election, it has nothing to do with foreign policy, yet the American football fan will decide the fate of Iraq and the fate of Iran because that American football fan is upset and that American football fan is going to vote. Um, if we look at Iraq, we look at, we have to look at it through the lens of our Sunni regional allies and also Tehran. Our Sunni regional allies are hoping for an election outcome that continues uh, to put this pressure on Iran. And from Tehran and Baghdad, because the political parties in Baghdad are are controlled by Tehran, they seek an election, election outcome that favors Iran. Uh, when it comes to the shutdown of the US embassy, I mean, this is what this conversation is, is mostly about. I believe it's a, it's a strong leverage move because if you listen to the voices of the militia leaders, uh, those Iraqi militias tied to Tehran, they don't want the embassy to shut down because they know with that becomes designations, comes sanctions and especially in Tehran, if we start to punish Iraq economically, start to designate the Fatah party led by Hadi al-Amri, uh, designate Bana'a, which is the grouping of Hadi al-Amri's Fatah party, Maliki's state of law, and some other Shia factions, uh, Iraq's economy becomes toxic and Iran can't use it anymore to offset in a, in a way US sanctions. So uh, if you simply look at the people that are arguing that we shouldn't shut down the embassy, this will give a victory to Tehran. Uh, this will make America look weak. Uh, you have to look at all the pushback. The pushback is from the militias. The pushback is from Tehran. The pushback is from Baghdad, meaning they want to keep the embassy open. Uh, they, they want to be able to punish the United States uh, with these errant rocket attacks. They're not casually producing attacks. Uh, while saying, look what we're doing to this great superpower in Iraq. At the same time, they don't want that great superpower to shut off the economic uh, favor, favored status that Iraq has, meaning it's the US that is backing 300 arms um, correction. It's the US that is backing $30 billion in reconstruction funds. It's the US that is backing the NATO training mission. It's the US military equipment, intelligence and funds that Hadi Al-Amri of Badr that Case Kazali of Asab Ahl Haq want their hands on. Case, said, Case Kazali said, I'd like to see the Americans leave, but I want the, the F-15 program to remain in Iraq. Uh, and that's, that's very telling. So when we talk about shutting down the embassy, it, it would be a cosmetic victory for Tehran, meaning they could show militias storming the embassy, but it would also be an embarrassment for Baghdad, uh, especially when 80% of the Iraqi people are against what Baghdad is doing. When I, when I say Baghdad, I'm talking about Mustafa Kazami, the prime minister. I'm talking about the Council of Representatives, which is basically militia members wearing suits 
that are in charge of the, the decisions being made there, 80% uh, of, the, of the Iraqi people are against that, that government that's currently in power. It's, it's the Shia youth for the first time that have, have, have you know, been willing to die for, for a simple chant. Iraq should be free, Iran should be out. Iraq hura, Iran bara. And, and that's, that's very telling. We, we, you know, 70% of Iraq is under the age of 30. And for the first time, you have a pro-American Sunni region, a pro-American yet skeptical Kurdish region. And for the first time, the Shia youth, you know, over 60% of the Shia youth are pro-American, while 80% of the Shia youth are against Iran. So they're looking for foreign policy decisions by the United States that actually favor them, favor simple things like human rights, uh, like pushing uh, secure economic zones into the Shia areas, into the Sunni areas, and into the Kurdish areas. Uh, and let's talk about ISIS for a second. The militias tied to Tehran have become more dangerous to the US mission in Iraq than ISIS. And that's because the militias operate with impunity. They, on paper, they fall under the prime minister. Uh, in reality, they're paid by the Iraqi government, yet they answer to Tehran. And it's the United States position that unless Prime Minister Khadami gets control of these militias, something I've argued that he can't do because, again, all the power resides in the Council of Representatives, which are actually the militia leaders. The militia leaders form the Bana'a party. Uh, so Kadami can't do anything. And, um, you know, the United States is getting tired of this, of 17 years of failure in Iraq. Uh, the ISIS campaign only grew Qasem Soleimani's power to the point where they won an election in 2018 with the Fatah party, state of law, and, and other parties that formed the Bana'a party. But they grew so much power that Qasem Soleimani had to be taken out on January 2nd, 2020. And that's where Iraq is now. The United States knows it does not have a partner in this government. It knows that the border core saturation of the Iraqi security forces uh, is, has basically handed over the security and intelligence apparatus to a militia affiliated with Tehran. Not only a militia affili affiliated with Tehran, but Tehran's premier militia in Iraq, the Badr Corps, headed by Hadi al-Amri. So I simply look at this, uh, the threat to shut down the embassy as, as a brilliant leverage play because it messages more than that to Iraqis. It messages more than that to the militia members and to Tehran. It means economic sanctions are coming, targeting and designations are coming. And that means Hadi al-Amri. That means the Badr Corps. That means sanctioning Prime Minister Maliki. Remember, it was a precondition that Maliki had to step down ahead of the United States providing air support uh, to the Iraqi security forces to take on ISIS because Prime Minister Maliki was actually blamed for creating the space for ISIS to come in because he dismantled and targeted the Sunni Sons of Iraq program, which was a US-led program to basically turn the Sunni population against Al-Qaeda. He shut down the awakening, the Sahwat, and allowed it to be attacked by militias and ISIS as ISIS rolled into Iraq. And uh, we are now at a point where ISIS hasn't been defeated 
It's operating at the Al-Qaeda model. And now the biggest threat to not only the US mission in Iraq, but the Iraqi people, uh, it's also a threat to our Sunni regional allies in Israel. And that is this group of emboldened militias tied directly to Tehran. And experts that have ignored this, uh, my colleagues uh, from Brookings, from the Washington Institute for Near East Studies, or Near East uh, Policy, they've ignored the militias to the point they now sound like me when they warn about the militias and the influence. So I guess that's a good thing. Um, Baghdad will continue to allow existential threats to incubate in the Sunni areas. And now we have this additional threat of the militias that have a goal to become an existential threat. They are already a regional threat. They're already destabilizing Iraq. They were instrumental in destabilizing Syria. They've actually trained the Houthis. They've actually stepped into uh, Lebanon and Jordan and their goal is to continue. So this election real quick has consequences. Uh, we need to get back to a consistent foreign policy where our adversaries fear both a Democrat and a Republican president. And we need to, our, our, our strategies, our foreign policy ebbs and flows depending on who's in office and our adversaries take advantage of that. And uh, this may be an opportunity to actually use US smart power, US soft power and US hard power to get Iraq where it needs to be a pro-US country, a pro-Sunni regional uh, ally, uh, basic, basically a pro-Sunni regional ally country, and then also a potential uh, state that will at some point make peace with Israel. And I'll stop there. All right, thank you so much. Uh, we have quite a few questions coming in and that was a lot of information. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, First one in is, do you believe the US has betrayed Iraqi Kurds? And if so, how vulnerable are they? Absolutely. Um, the biggest problem is um, every American that makes a promise to, to the Kurds means it. That promise, they mean it 100%. The problem is that American has changed out after a year or two years. And you get another American that comes in. We've been in Iraq 17 times for one year. We haven't been in Iraq for 17 years. Our, our foreign policy and our, our strategy changes every year to two years. We betrayed the Kurds with the referendum vote in 2017. We've given examples of this to the Syrian Kurds that the US could betray them as well. Uh, we've actually split the KRG into two camps now. Iran has so much influence on the Kurds in Soleimaniya and the US is losing influence with the Kurds in Erbil and Derhuk because at the end of the day, if the US doesn't stand behind you, you're very vulnerable. And the Kurds have examples of being very vulnerable to these militias. And, uh, you know, it was a mistake and uh, the Kurds are right to be distrustful. Can you expand on the deeper meaning of the awakening in Iraq? And is it more against the US or Iran? So the, the awakening of 2007 was basically uh, Sunni tribes be getting tired of Al Qaeda. So we, we basically asked the question, who do we need to defeat Al Qaeda? and it would be the Sunni military age males that don't want to talk to us. So we'd go in and say, who here hates America? They'd raise their hands. Who here blames America for everything? They'd raise their hands. 
I mean, who here believes America is the only country or who believes that America can actually solve the problems? They all raise their hands. And then you ask them, what can we do about it? This new awakening is something we haven't engaged. We haven't used the lessons learned from 2007 to build consensus, to build a movement within this uprising in Iraq that is anti-Iran, anti-Baghdad, and by default, pro-US. And we're not taking advantage of that. Our politicians, our military, our Pentagon continues to believe that we need to engage the status quo in Baghdad. And Iraqis are screaming very loudly, no, do not engage. So how can Iraq become a Sunni leader in the area when the country is, has a large population of Shia? Yeah, this is the, the, the most interesting part of this. The, the large population that Shia is, 70% of them are under the age of 30. 80% of them are against Iran. They, they don't want to see an American in uniform anymore. They don't want to see an American in a suit anymore. They want to see a tech entrepreneur. They want to see a university professor. They want to see the benefits of, of, of being in favor with United States, meaning being in, in economic favor. Uh, the Shia of Iraq didn't protest when Israel conducted four airstrikes inside of Iraq to, to hit Kitab Hezbollah, a militia tied to Tehran. They didn't look at it as a violation of Iraqi sovereignty. They looked at it as Israel punishing an invading force, these Iraqi militias. There were no protests in Iraq against Israel. And that told me that this is a time where Iraq is finally ready for a change. The problem is our US State Department and Department of Defense are slow to see that. And I categorize DC into three categories. The cheerleaders, the people that say, oh, everything's great in Iraq. The Cassandras, this guy right here. And then the cautious, the decision maker that's in office for one to two years that's not willing to make tough decisions. Is it realistic to expect the separate Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish areas to form a viable state? It's, it's unrealistic because they all want the same thing. The Sunnis want Baghdad, the Shia want Baghdad, the Sunnis want Baghdad and Kirkuk, the Shia want Baghdad and Kirkuk, the Kurds want Kirkuk. So I, I equate it to a, an iPad. If you drop it and it breaks into three, it breaks into three pieces, it's, it's, you can't use it. Uh, Iraq is that way. The Sunnis believe that they actually will control, they basically carve out Iraq, and this is based on history, into basically the Shia areas south of Baghdad and into Basra. But then they take the whole south, um, basically the southwest uh, part of the state and all the way up into the Kurdish areas as well. So everybody wants the same place. It would lead to violence. There's no separation. There's no, there could be federalism, but there, there can't be three, three separate states. Thank you. Isn't uh, Kadami between a rock and a hard place? If he goes after the militias in a meaningful way, won't the Iranian parties rip away their support and his government will fail? Paul? Yes, his government should fail if he does that because that would be a good thing. Um, Kadami was, was brokered in. We have no, a, lot of, a lot of people don't know this. Kadami was selected by Soleimani was selected by Nasrallah, was selected by Muqtadr al-Sadr, was selected by these others. Now, Kadami was great when it, when it meant going against Sunni jihadists. And, and American decision makers said, well, if he can go against ISIS, he can go against the militias. That's, that's, that, that's just not the way these things work. It's very easy for a, a Shia 
a politician to say meaning all Sunnis are terrorists. Um, but it's very difficult for a prime minister from the Shia political parties to say the militias are a terrorist organization, we have to go after them. So Qadami is powerless to do so. Um, correction, Soleimani was dead by the time Qadami was approved, but his, his successor, Ismail Khani, approved of Prime Minister Mustafa al-Qadami. So if Iran likes him, if Nasrallah likes him, and the militias like him, he's not a problem. He's not a threat to them. Understood. So can you expand a little further on what the possible economic sanctions would be and what would the far-reaching effects be of those? I would argue that simply the threat of sanctioning and designating political parties in Iraq's economy would have a large, would send a loud message to these parties that they have to pretend to like the United States, that they have to stop these militia attacks, that they have to stand down. And you've actually seen that sort of messaging coming out of these militias saying that we're going to stop the rocket attacks, we're going to wait for the election, but if Trump wins, we're going to increase the attacks. Now, Secretary Pompeo has already told Baghdad that if they continue to attack the American positions, we have 25 targets that we're ready to action. And that is, that is a loud message. That's a message that they understand. And we also have the credibility of taking out Qasem Soleimani and, and Abu Mehdi al-Mohandis, the leader of Kitab Hezbollah and that drone strike on January 2nd. Uh, 2020. If we threaten to sanction and make Iraq's economy toxic, it hurts Iran. It, it'll be as toxic as Iran's is. And even the Iraqi political parties tied to Tehran don't want that. So it's a huge leverage position to even make the threat, but to actually do some of these things. And you can carve out areas. You, you, can, you can establish these secure economic zones where that money goes to US banks and we give it directly to parties that are, are pro-US anti-Iran in the Shia section and our Shia part, of, Shia part of Iraq, Sunni part of Iraq and the Kurdish part of Iraq. And that's something that we, we've done in Syria. That's something we've done in other places. There's models to do that. Instead of one that keeps changing. All right, thank you so much. Um, so what in your opinion should the US foreign, oh, sorry, actually you touched on Trump if he were to win. Yeah, absolutely. What do you see a Biden presidency looking like? If Biden wins, he's gonna jump back right, right back into the Iran deal. And the Iran deal basically hands Iraq over to Iran. Um, it's that simple. The, the same people that are working his Iran strategy are the same people that accelerated Iran's takeover of Iraq. Uh, jumping back into the JCPOA would have terrible consequences for not only the Iranian people that are against their government, but also the Iraqis. It would be bad for I think we lost you. Hello.
Mr. Preeton. Can you hear me better? I don't know what happened. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I, I no lost you for a minute there. Uh, I could hear you the whole time. You just couldn't hear me. <laughs> Sorry okay. about that. No problem. All right. So I think we cut out on the last part of that question. And was it about the economy? Yes. Yeah. So Iran wants Iraq to remain in US favor because if it does, then Iraq can't benefit from stealing Iraq's resources. Uh, securing regions in, in Iraq, secure, we call them secure economic zones, uh, could, could allow that money to go through US banks and only go to favorable groups in Iraq. And we're gonna stay in Iraq because we're, we're there under a UN mandate to defeat ISIS, just like we're in Syria. We're not invited into Syria by Damascus. We don't have to be invited into Iraq by Baghdad. We have plenty of friends in the country where we can actually stay and continue the mission against ISIS and add the, add the mission to go after the militias because they are a problem for the region. So how do you see the future of Iraq after the department departure of the American troops? Well, the Iraqi security forces cannot handle ISIS and they can't handle the militias. So I see complete chaos, complete security degradation. Uh, one of the arguments State Department makes with Baghdad is, do you really want to become Yemen? Do you really want to become Syria? Because that's what will happen if the US leaves. Uh, you, can't, you can't kill ISIS. You can't do it without it, it basically bringing Sunnis into the military. There are no Sunnis in the Iraqi security forces. You can't defeat a Sunni, insert, a Sunni jihadist group without the support of Sunnis. And uh, that's one of the biggest problems. So I see uh, security degradation and I see uh, civil war with the South basically revolting against Baghdad. And how would you recommend a U.S. policy to clearly establish Iraq part of a, the new Mideast developing order? Yes. Uh, so, so real quick, answering your last question, what happens if Biden wins? He jumps back into the Iran deal, hands Iraq over to Iran, and, it, and it's, it's bad for everyone. So how, how do I see, what would I recommend to a future president? Uh, you have to stay in Iraq regardless and let Baghdad know that. That if Baghdad doesn't protect our embassy, we'll simply move to Erbil. And we'll continue the ISIS campaign there. We'll, we'll start to support the Sunni awakening again in, in Anbar and Diyala and Saladin and Nineveh provinces. And we'll punish Baghdad economically. We've got to maintain sanctions on Iran, continue to increase those every month, just like the Trump administration has done. Uh, if Trump wins, the regime cannot survive another four years of, of Trump. And negotiating a round deal does not save the regime because uh, there will be many concessions that need to happen that need, will, will have to be made. Uh, Pompeo's 12 points, any combination of those points, two to three of those points, if Iran agrees to it, would collapse the regime. If you simply allowed the hijab to be optional, the regime would collapse. That's how fragile this regime is. That is good news, I suppose. <laughs> so who's protecting the Christians in Iraq? That's the, that's the biggest problem is it's the easiest ask of Baghdad to allow Christians to return to the Nineveh Plains. They can't vote in mass to unseat COR members or have enough influence in a parliamentary election that's going to happen in 2022. 
So the easiest ask that would have the most benefit to Baghdad from the United States is being rejected. So the Kurds are protecting the Christians right now. And, and the Shia militias are trying to act like they're protecting the Christians by keeping them out of, Nin of the Nineveh plains by saying, well, there's too many ISIS fighters there. So that's one of the biggest problems. The easiest ask of Baghdad is being rejected. And that's why Baghdad should be punished. That's why uh, people like Prime Minister Maliki and Hadi Al-Amri should be sanctioned and designated because they continue to di disallow uh, Christians to return to Nineveh province. And in the event, if Iran were to rush to get the bomb, how would that impact Iraq? So if Iran was to rush to get the bomb, we would actually get our European allies to join with us. I've, I've spoken to, to Russian counterparts on this in these track two events. And they said, listen, any violation of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty is a red line for us. And if they rush towards a bomb, the last thing a pragmatic Putin wants is a nuclear bomb in the hands of a Islamic you know, government on its border. And China feels the same way. Again, if, when China talks about injecting $450 billion into Iran's economy, it's over 25 years. $19 billion over a year for 25 years cannot sustain a $400 billion economy. And everything China will build in Iran will be for China. It'll be 5G towers for China, railroads for China, infrastructure for China. It would just happen to be in Iran and China will not hire local Iranians to build that. It'll bring in its own workers like we've seen in Saudi Arabia, like we've seen in Iraq and across the region. Well, in preparation for this webinar, I read your article that was published in September. It was very enlightening. Can you actually give us a little more information? Is that, is that the one in the mosaic? I'm sorry, what? Is that the one in the mosaic? Yes. 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 Well, uh, it yeah. just basically talks about U.S. failure over the last 17 years. You know, we, we, we go in and we go in with this contrarian position that, all right, who else hates Saddam? Well, Iran hates Saddam. All right, so let's use the Shia militias to, you know, let's ally with them because if we both hate Saddam, then we get rid of them, they'll like us. And no, it was basically help us get rid of Saddam. Remember uh, Chalabi and others that were telling us that, that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. We're, we're also tied to Iran in a, lot, in a lot of ways with their political parties. It, it, it was, um, you know, it was to the benefit of Tehran that we dropped Saddam so that they could come into Iraq. And they came into Iraq, as that piece suggests, uh, or not, not suggests, actually highlights, uh, 30,000 Bada Corps members came across the border and started an assassination campaign against Sunnis, Christians, and Shia military uh, officers because they wanted to ensure that Iraq would never be a threat to Iran again. And the United States has accelerated that by taking Badr off, you know, by not designating Badr Corps, by emboldening Amri, by supporting Maliki. Every prime minister the United States has supported, with the exception of Iyad Alawi, has been the wrong one. With Maliki came ISIS. With, with uh, Abadi came Qasem Soleimani and the militias. With Abdul Abdul-Mehdi came the killing of protesters. And now with Mustafa al-Kadhimi, the militias are more powerful than they've ever been. We now have Abu Fadak of Kitab Hezbollah. We have them blatantly attacking U.S. positions, while Kadhimi says it's ISIS that's doing it. 
it's an embarrassment how Americans have taken the eye off the ball. All the institutional knowledge on Iraq is out here, <clears throat> out here in the think tanks. It's not in the in Pentagon. It's not at the State Department. It's not in the White House. And so the experts, if you're on the other side of my arguments, those experts are responsible for 17 years of failure. And, I, and I, I'll say it like it is. Michael Knights, you know, Ken Pollock, people like that that say, we need to continue to support the Iraqi government and, and continue to support the Iraqi security forces while Iran grows strength each year, have basically led to, to a, an Iraq that is now, we're getting ready to say halas, which means we're, we're done in Arabic. We're out of here because we, over 17 years, gave this country to, to Iran. And I'm not faulting any commander that was on the ground during those 17 years. Every commander that did made a promise to the Iraqi people meant it. It's the next commander that came in that didn't follow the course that made a promise, meant it. And then the next person that came in and made a different promise and meant it. And you have these 17 years of, of, of changing strategy of broken promises. And at least to that first question, why should the Kurds trust the Americans? Just based on this. Why should the Sunnis trust the Americans after we abandoned them, uh, after Maliki targeted the awakening and left them vulnerable to ISIS? And why should the Shia youth now trust us when they're being shot in the face and you can't hear uh, any condemnation other than a couple blanket statements uh, you know, that, that their government should be held responsible for human rights abuses or human rights atrocities? So I get it. I get, I get the skepticism, but it's so easy. It's an easy fix. You basically say that Baghdad it will be an economic disfavor if it continues, and Tehran will shut it down, shut down the violence because Tehran needs Iraq to be a life support system for Tehran during these sanctions, the maximum pressure campaign. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of I course. hope the signal wasn't too bad. <laughs> no, heard you loud and clear. All right, so for our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our weekly update with Naved Dromi in place of Ashley Perry this week. And thank you all for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you again.